this is Joe and TJ with another episode of our One Thing series. Our desire is that our One Thing series truly helps you to lead better and grow faster. Every month on our podcast, we feature a great guest always on the topic of leadership and we blast it out to you from the schoolhouse302.com. Thank you, TJ. Please share this with other leaders you know that are looking and craving to get better. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Here we are with our guest, Richard Elmore. Thank you for being here, Richard. Welcome to the show. I'm pleased to be with you. This month, we are focused on the leader as a learner to grow and become more skilled. Learning is critical for leaders, and we are exploring some of the best ways to learn. With this in mind, we really couldn't think of anyone better to have this conversation with than Richard Elmore. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a little bit more? Thanks, Joe. Our guest this month is Richard Elmore. Richard Elmore is currently research professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where he has been on the faculty since 1990. He was founding faculty director of the Doctorate in Educational Leadership at Harvard, an innovative interdisciplinary residential cohort-based leadership program for the learning sector now in its 11th year. His online Harvard X course, Leaders of Learning, has been taken more than 100,000 by one, more than 100,000 learners internationally since its inception in 2014. From 1995 to 2014, his research and consulting practice focused on building instructional improvement capabilities of teachers and administrators through direct observation and analysis of classroom practice. He has worked with schools in large urban districts in the US and with government and private schools in Australia, Canada, Mexico, Chile, and China. His current work focuses on the relationship between research on the neuroscience of learning and the physical, cultural, and social design of new learning environments for adults, adolescents, and young children. He consults with architectural design firms, working with international clients on the design and construction of innovative learning environments. He's a painter working in watercolor and oil media and a writer of Tonka poetry. Okay, Richard. We want to dive into the conversation on the importance of leaders to be the lead learners in their schools and districts. You write extensively on the need for educators to learn and for them to be responsible for their own growth. Learning is such a broad topic, but we want this conversation to focus on learning to improve schools. So the learner, the leader as a learner to improve their school, what are some key ways that leaders can learn and grow specifically related to identified needs of the school that could lead to greater student achievement? Well, my um, thoughts about this are have really heavily shaped by the fact that <clears throat> uh, I've had a very, very classroom-based uh, practice working with uh, leaders of all types, teacher leaders, professional development people, central office staff, uh, principals, school support staff, et cetera. And it's all, as, as you know, been anchored in a, an essential practice. And that is the uh, <clears throat> observation and analysis of the actual teaching that's going on in a classroom with actual 
teachers in relation to students. And um, the underlying professional development model is developing a community of practice by uh, shared experience through observation and analysis of, of instruction. Uh, I figure that I've probably been in somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 classrooms uh, with uh, uh, hundreds of teachers and uh, educators of various, at various levels of the system over the time I've been doing this work. When I was searching for kind of a response to your prompt about uh, one big idea uh, and to try to capture in, uh, in summary form kind of what my experience has been, I kind of, I kind of focus on this idea of, um, it's a Buddhist idea of uh, the beginner's mind. When I, when I first started uh, doing this work, I, uh, I saw it happen in a, in a uh, district in a uh, community district in New York City, District 2. Uh, the, the district itself exists, but the practice has, is long gone. And it really was a community of people who were uh, deeply focused on instructional practice. And every principal in the district once a month spent a full day with other principals in the district visiting classrooms. And that eventually branched out into teachers visiting each other's classrooms and an, and an entirely uh, instructionally based, observationally based professional development model. So I got interested in this idea that professional educators could learn from observing each other practice and could develop a common culture around powerful ideas of practice. Uh, at the same time, I was got interested in um, this idea of professionalism and what it means. And so I was observing physicians and medical students in the Harvard uh, teaching hospitals doing uh, uh, medical rounds, professional rounds, which is, if you know anything about the Harvard Medical School, that is like the core uh, teaching practice, clinical practice at, in the Harvard uh, teaching hospitals. And one of the things that impressed me about that um, practice was I could, I could join the groups of uh, medical students at various levels, along with attending physicians moving from room to room through a hospital. And uh, I could understand basically, at the, especially at the beginning of a visit, I can understand everything that they were talking about. That is the level of questioning was at a very, very, very descriptive, very essentialist, very non-technical level. Um, and that sort of surprised me because I expected, frankly, when I stepped in that I wouldn't understand anything that was going on because it was all uh, technical medical practice. So that was kind of shocking to me. And, and eventually what I came to understand is that the essence of the practice, in much the same way as the practice in District 2 in New York was get to the smallest, most granular level of describing what you see. Because if you can't have a common idea 
about what you're actually seeing, you have not a prayer of making any kind of a causal inference that's any good in making a diagnosis. And it was this idea of uh, the, the beginner's mind that, that kind of shocked me, uh, the power of that idea, the power of people in communication with each other at a very, very, very basic level. So we, we developed this practice, wrote a book about it and started running uh, relationships with school districts uh, on, a, on a repeat basis all over the country uh, and large uh, professional development sessions in Cambridge and Boston that involved a uh, combination of classroom work and um, observation in Boston schools. And uh, I discovered, I think, I think two things. Um, one is that people love the practice. They, I can't tell you um, how many times I heard people say, this is the reason I got into education in the first place. I never get to do this kind of work in my job. This restores my faith in education. It gives me a reason. Uh, I wanna stay with this practice because uh, it, it's given me a new uh, lease on my career choice. And this is uh, people who've been practicing for five years and people who've been practicing for 40 years, people who are close to retirement who decided not to retire because they got interested uh, in the work again and people who were struggling with their own notions of practice and leadership at the front end, either as teachers or as, or as principals. So we, I, I came to, to, to think of that as satisfaction. That is, this is a very satisfying practice. It gives people a sense of accomplishment and engagement in their work. One of the things that I learned fairly quickly, however, is that there's a difference between satisfaction and impact. And uh, this is a very sobering thing I'm about to say, because if I were uh, a typical person in the professional development business, I would be saying, you know, you, this, the reason you do this practice is because it revolutionizes classrooms all over the place and it's a wonderful thing. And, Etc. There was really not much relationship between satisfaction and impact. And I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the cause of that might be. And uh, I have a theory, and I won't uh, I won't develop it now, but I think that it has to do with the the institution of schooling. And, and the way the institution affects people's behavior as opposed to their aspirations and their needs. And I think that you've gone pretty deeply into, into some of those themes in your other podcasts about the, the tensions between what people aspire to, what gives them joy, what, what motivates them, what drives them and what their actual work asks them to do. And I think that there's, there's a tension. Now, I, I just wanna pause at this point and say that I am concerned 
like a lot of people, that uh, there is a growing gap developing in the world at large between what I'll call education on the one hand and learning on the other. I think learning is going to be central to our survival as a species. Um, and it is gonna be, have to be the focus of very intense work uh, into the foreseeable future. How do people learn? Where do they learn? What are the forms of learning that we need to muster and master and design in the future? And how do we make that happen for as many people as possible in as many settings as possible uh, with as many possible outcomes as we can think of? Uh, it so happens that there is a massive transformation going on around our understanding of learning and what it is uh, in the field of neuroscience. It also happens that that massive transformation of our knowledge about learning from neuroscience has almost nothing to do with the education sector. Uh, it's like uh, the analogy I was thinking of as I was trying to figure out how to articulate this is, it's like um, medicine, the practice of medicine before germ theory. That is, the education sector operates on a set of, at, at the most technical level, insofar as there is expertise in the education sector, it comes largely from the field of behavioral psychology, which is if, if the fundamentals of behavioral psychology are that we observe behavior, we don't, we don't observe the actual machine itself and how it works, we observe the manifestations of the machine in the behavior of human beings. And uh, that is the, in my mind, kind of the equivalent of where medicine was before germ theory. <laughs> and, and so now what, what's happening is we actually are developing very specific, very granular knowledge of how, how human beings learn um, that is, I think, often quite divergent from our understanding of learning that's represented in the institution called schools. And, and that's what's driving my, uh, my interest now. And I think that one of the ways to draw people into this conversation, and I don't think it's just educators we're concerned about, it's people who are interested in the learning sector. That's why I designed my online course around the learning sector and not around schools. Even though probably 85% of the people who, who have taken the online course are educators. Um, but I, I wanna introduce people to the idea that um, human beings uh, have a, have 100,000 years of genetic and evolutionary practice at learning. We are engineered to learn. We have survived as a species by learning 
it is time for us to acknowledge that and to begin to build settings for learning that capitalize on the new knowledge that's taking place at the granular level about how this process of evolution and development has occurred over time and how we as human beings can augment that independently of the institutional interests of schools and teachers and superintendents and the policymakers who influence them. And that over the long term, the more that learning leaks into society at large, and the more that people who are interested in learning, including educators, can, can aid that, the better off we're going to be. And that is going to take uh, a step back. And that is where I think the beginner's mind uh, comes into play. What's important when you sit with adults and kids in learning settings without preconceptions and simply watch them learn and learn to ask questions to uh, try to uncover what's going on in their minds while they're learning is it transforms your point of view. And I think that that's one of the things that I took away from instructional rounds is our most powerful moments are the moments we've spent sitting talking to kids. And incidentally, also talking to teachers. And I have some stories I can tell about that if you're interested, but I think we, I personally have had some transformational uh, experiences, especially working with teachers around this that I think really underscore this idea that we are going to have to step back from our programmed institutionally determined understandings of how people learn into the world in which we ask innocent questions, simple questions in the interest of trying to engage with people at the level at which learning actually occurs, not in terms of pre conceived ideas about how we want people to learn, what's good for them, what the institution demands of them, what it takes to create good test scores, what it takes to create a quote unquote good school in terms of the market and in terms of the external measures, but to step back, uh, occupy the beginner's mind and begin to engage adults and, and children uh, on the process of learning and begin to have that observation informed by what we're learning from, from neuroscience. And I think that there are a lot of findings that are coming out now that are quite divergent from, from our understandings of learning in school, but quite consistent with what you would predict if you started from a very innocent and very naive position that said, these human organisms have been doing this activity called learning for 100,000 years, at least. What do we know about how that works? How is it <laughs> that uh, it goes on regardless of whether people are sitting in, in chairs in school, <laughs> it goes on as a life project. Uh, people survive as a consequence of learning, right? How is it that human beings can do this? 
And, and if we can capitalize on that knowledge of how they do it, what are the many ways in which we can develop human capacities for learning? And what are the many settings in which learning can occur? And what role do educators play in that, in that process? Uh, I'll just give you one teacher anecdote. Um, when I run these um, instructional rounds, professional development workshops, uh, we do, before we go out into schools, and I always insist that we go out and, and actually do work in schools and don't just sit uh, in, uh, in chairs in a collective setting. Um, we do video observations just to kind of warm up for the kind of observational practice that I'll be asking people to do when they actually go out into schools. And at some point, either before we start the video observations or uh, sometime during the flow, I always stop the action and, and ask people, what is the most powerful learning experience you have had in the past 12 months? Now, imagine a room full of 50, 75, 100 teachers sitting at round tables in groups of eight or 10. Uh, there's a certain amount of kind of, uh, I ask them to pair up and talk to each other and identify the most powerful learning experience they've had in their lives in the, in the past 12 months. Um, the first few times this happened, I, I was dumbfounded. I was totally shocked. I, I was speechless. I didn't know how to respond. Because when I asked people to stand up and talk about the most powerful learning experiences they've had in the past 12 months, almost none of them talked about anything that happened in school. Practically zero. So that's point number one. Point number two is they talked about powerful life events. And they talked about them in terms that brought tears to people's eyes. They talked about uh, dealing with an aging parent. They talked about their process of adjusting to and coming to terms with a drug addicted child or spouse. They talked about reforming a relationship with someone with whom they'd had a deep personal conflict. They talked about a transformational spiritual experience. They talked about coming to understand the sources of unhappiness in their life. Now, uh, these are people who are programmed not to talk about these things in the workplace. And there they were in a setting with their peer educators, basically bearing their souls, talking about these things, in part because I asked them to talk about a powerful experience. 
and being educators are generally kind of compliant people around authority figures, um, at least one-on-one, -on -one, they tried to do what I asked them to do. And uh, what I learned, at least one of the things I learned was that there was power around learning in that room. And this has happened to me many times. Uh, it's happened to me so many times that I'm no longer surprised by it. But if I ask them to talk about learning as an activity in their professional lives, what I got was tended to be a very stripped down, very program, programmatic kind of language. Not the, not the language that was powerful when they were talking about the most powerful learning experience they'd had in the past year. And that troubles me. That means that what's happening is that there's some kind of bifurcation that's occurring between their understanding of learning in their workplace and their understanding of learning in their lives. I want that, their understanding of learning in their lives to be what their work is about. At least that's what I thought I was trying to do. And uh, it, 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 in general, uh, the connection is not very powerful. So I've shifted my focus now to what, I, what I'm calling really powerful learning environments. And I sent you some stuff that uh, describes some of these settings. And I've tried to understand what is it about these settings that causes adults and kids to engage in learning as a, I'll just, call, I'll just call it for what it is, as a biological and evolutionary act, a necessity for human survival. That is what engages their need to learn as an activity for human survival, as opposed to an institutionalized practice. And, and this uh, learning for evolutionary and biological survival is what I was hearing from the teachers when they were describing their learning in their lives. And what I was hoping to see when we were doing it in school settings, and, and it worries me. It worries me, especially now that we're learning so much uh, about what actually goes on inside this human organism around this project called human development and learning. And so I'll just leave it there. The beginner's mind is a powerful metaphor for stepping back from all of the institutional determinants of what we think of as learning let's call that education and let's call that schooling. There is some activity that goes on in that institutionalized setting that we could call learning. 
there is also this whole other human project upon which our survival depends. It's our responsibility to, to design for that in addition to figuring out what to do with the institution called school. I no longer believe that, there's, that there, the two are co coterminous. I just don't believe it anymore. Uh, I believe that human beings will find ways to learn to survive independently of what school teaches them, if that's necessary. Our job is to figure out how to do that well for as many people as possible. Now, what's interesting about the examples that I've given that I've given you and that I'm that I'm looking at, and I'm 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 actually looking at many more examples, is that uh, uh, they take on the most difficult cases. So it's pretty easy to create an environment that's a powerful learning environment if everybody volunteers and everybody steps in and, and there are people of privilege who have choices to do those things and uh, they choose to spend their time doing it. They, they choose to do uh, to learn in the way that uh, I'm learning when I'm learning how to paint. I have a, I have a, a community of people uh, who help me learn. Uh, but the tutoria program in Mexico is in 9,000 schools, most of them in rural communities where there basically was no institutionalized education going on in the first place. Now, if I took you into one of those settings and showed you those kids teaching each other mathematics, history, honestly, I think people who, uh, who are not familiar with this practice are dumbfounded to see the power of the learning that's going on in those environments. Uh, I could also show this setting, show you this setting where kids who basically for one reason or another don't do particularly well in school. They come from all kinds of backgrounds, some of them from privileged backgrounds, some of them from uh, basically very poor communities. They're put into a setting, they're given a problem to solve. It's an organization that's run by a bunch of architects. They're not educators. They have a practice. The practice is a design model. They teach the model, the kids do the work and the learning that's required to do the work is a consequence of the design problem they're, they're given. So they learn whatever they need to know in order to do the work, basically. And they do this in, in five and six week cycles and they come out of those exercises, competent, high agency, well-informed, deeply committed learners. Many of them go into those settings feeling that they're stupid and that disengagement is the solution to their problem in school, basically. So what I'm trying to, uh, the, the puzzle I'm trying to understand here is if we can create these settings that release all this energy around the activity called learning for people who uh, are like those teachers in professional development, in my professional development settings, the 
they're powerful learners in their personal lives. You know, they're extraordinary people. Uh, how do we begin to, to think about this as a design problem? And by design, I mean across the board. I mean everything about the environments in which people learn, the culture, the human relationships, the affect, the behavior, and the physical setting. Uh, one of the things I think that we've learned to ignore uh, at our peril is the fact that we are putting kids in highly toxic physical environments. And we're making them sit there largely uh, for long periods of time doing things that the research is beginning to tell us are absolutely counter to human uh, to learning as a human development activity basically sooner or later we're going to discover that this is what we've done to kids we're going to see it in kind of bold face i would prefer that when that discovery begins to occur we have something in the bank we have networks of people who can step in and begin to cultivate these broader definitions of learning and learning environments that are capable of bringing adults and kids into more powerful uh, settings. So, so I'll stop there. But I do think that that is going to take a, re a retreat from the place we're in right now, in which we have all the answers. The, the problem is not for most educators, the problem is not, do we know what to do? The problem is, can we do it with fidelity and can we do it with compliance, right? The problem we're facing right now is that we've run out the string on that. We don't know where we're going next developmentally. And I think the way we get into learning as an activity is to begin to see the world through beginner's eyes. What is it? Why have we survived as a species? What is it about our inbuilt competencies for learning that we can begin to design around? And on the one hand, it's a very optimistic point of view. On the other hand, it's a big project because our solution right now uh, is a very institutional solution. It's not one that's really based around the design for human beings. It's based on a kind of institutional necessity that we've programmed into our uh, uh, understanding of the lives of children and adults. Richard, can I ask a follow-up to this? Um, as I hear you, and it, it does make sense, and, and TJ and I, are working on a, a couple projects, one heavily involved in neuroscience. How do we invest um, in our teachers in positive ways to build learning environments for our students? Something that I'm struggling with as I hear you talk as well, that I want to kind of revisit when you said early on, one of the outcomes of the rounds was satisfaction did not equal impact. However, we could 
you know, I know from what you described earlier on is some of those experiences were some of the most gratifying experiences. And so would probably be closer linked to the biological description you're making now. How do we bridge? So if that's a good, genuine exposure to how we should learn, like as adults or students, put them in, you observe, you get on a granular level. But you also realize that it didn't necessarily lead to greater impact or even, you know, I don't want to make assumptions, but leading um, that to the individual knowing what to do with that knowledge gained. But yet the experiences were far more rich, much of what you described on how we learn when we're forced to, and there's a ton of emotion attached, like some of these life experiences that you described. Have you reconciled that in your mind or, or thought about how we take a very, very organic process or what should be, create what TJ and I call a learning culture versus a teaching culture, but then have it lead to impact without, without us as administrators setting up all these, you know, contrived qualifiers because we need to make sure um, that there was gain. Yeah. Joe, I, I, I am 40,000 words into a manuscript on this subject. And so, and, and I have purposely haven't gone into the analysis because it's going to be very, very, very upsetting to people. And I'm, I'm not even sure I can find a publisher for this book uh, because, uh, because in the education sector, people don't like books that, um, that are pointed in the way this this argument is is uh, is pointed but but i'll just say that um what you aspire to is not possible within the institutional constraints of the education system we have created okay that that uh that's the shortest possible version of the argument but uh and i'm i'm about to dive in here and it gets really complicated really quick, but I'll just, I'll, I'll give you the most sim- simplistic formula. Learning is fourth on the list of functions of schools, and it's a distant fourth. In order of importance, functionally for society, the function of school is custody. We have to figure out what to do with the kids. And custody is the is the imperative. If you don't, if you don't believe in that, just watch what's going on right now with COVID-19. What is the central problem that parents and educators are faced with? It's what to do with the kids. Okay. We as a society have no alternatives. We could have invented uh, other solutions to the problem of duty of care. We could have anticipated the possibility that we would approach a situation where schools custody functions were not adequate to the problems we were trying to solve. We didn't do that. So now we're stuck with it. Once you have custody, you have to have control. That means behavior, structure, physical and, and, and cultural and social structure. 
basically. Those are the two fundamental functions of schooling. Once we establish that, we start to get into the money. Schools, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, are the primary uh, source of the allocation of rewards and penalties and uh, merit in society at large. They're part of a merit machine. Uh, they run essentially the education sector, including higher education, runs the meritocracy, basically. We decide privilege. Now just pause for a moment and think of the irony of having an, a whole institution that's full of people who are committed to equity, right? Running the machine whose purpose is to create privilege. And then we, run, we, we wonder why educators are, you know, psychologically, emotionally torn up about this stuff, right? You basically put them in an organization, one of whose primary functions is allocating inequality in society through grades, test scores, recommendations, you know, reinforcement of social class, creating structures that privilege just by their physical location and the funding arrangement that privilege certain groups of people over others. We've given them the function of allocating privilege in society. And then we've made the central normative claim of the organization equity. And then finally, fourth on the list is something called learning. That's what we do when there's any time left over after custody control and the allocation of merit. But we have to have learning because it legitimizes, especially the merit uh, function. Uh, we have to make up a story, a narrative about why what you learn in school has consequences for you in later life in order to justify the normative uh, decisions we make about the allocation of privilege in society, right? It so happens that when you observe learning going on in the wild, it has nothing to do with any of that bullshit, right? It has to do with people trying to survive by solving problems and creating opportunities for themselves. It has to do with people managing their emotions and their instrumental reflexes for the acquisition of knowledge in the presence of uncertainty. When you're, when you're looking at learning in the wild, when you're looking at kids and adults who are actively engaged in learning, it has very little to do with this notion that, um, learning, that learning is an instrument of control or learning is an instrument for allocating privilege or learning is this or that. Learning is a biological and evolutionary necessity, basically, for human survival. So I think that uh, I'm being harsh here. 
But what I'm trying to say is we created an institution that can't do what the people with the strongest motivations and aspirations think it can do because it's designed precisely to not do that, right? It's social charge is to legitimate privilege, basically. So um, fine, that's not, that's not gonna transform itself overnight. Although the collapse of the higher education sector may, <laughs> may bring this on a little quicker <laughs> than we imagine. <laughs> because you know, if you can't make the higher education sector work financially, the whole idea of merit starts to be a little shaky. Like, why am I trying to get into college, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing, and and um, I don't I don't know, Richard, if I'd label it harsh. It's one one thing about COVID is I think a lot more people are willing to tackle tough conversations, or at least have them, or less at least yeah. entertain them. TJ and I have been in positions before in which uh, the the title of our first book was actually called Offensive. And the common reply was, no, this is offensive. Yeah. <laughs> and that so, wasn't in our intention. It was really yeah. around a lot of what you're describing, masked conversations that yeah. we're trying to get to the heart yeah. of. So um, I'll, just, I'll just give you one example from COVID that it just drives me crazy every time I hear it because I'm so immersed in the neuroscience that it just, uh, like I, you know, I can't, I can hardly control myself. The, this constant re repeated theme that kids are falling behind as a result of not being engaged in formal schooling or in, in unequal access to, uh, to teachers, et cetera. Falling behind what? Falling behind a normative structure of content and uh, performance, whatever that would be, that's scripted by the institution, right? It says nothing about the human beings, right? So when we say that kids are falling behind as a consequence of not being able to engage in formal schooling, what we're saying is we've created an institution that determines what's appropriate for kids at particular stages and ages. And we have now faced a situation where the failure of that institution means that kids can't hit those marks, right? I, I'm here to tell you that the neuroscience doesn't even relate to that. <laughs> First of all, the neuroscience is going into this multiple pathways of development stuff where, you know, human resilience is remarkable, right? There are reasons why people who majored in English as undergraduates get into the Harvard Medical School, right? Because they're resilient learners, you know? They, do, they go and learn what's necessary to get a good score on the MCAT to get into medical school, right? There are reasons why people develop later in life as powerful agents in their, 
uh, in their environment. There are reasons why people who do, don't do well in school do extremely well in life, right? There, there are many reasons why humans develop these capabilities as learners. We need to get in touch with that. That's where the equity issue lies. The equity issue doesn't lie in hitting the mark. We're getting a lot of feedback from the institution now about the model that says you have to hit the mark, right? Uh, the real problem lies, the real equity problem lies in uh, the question I would raise is, why are those kids who come from absolutely nothing in rural Mexico doing spectacularly well? Going uh, to intermediate schools that have 12 or 15 students, right? Why are they, why are they developing so powerfully as learners? Why are they so competent in controlling and managing themselves in learning situations? What is it about that setting that makes them competent, right? That's where the equity problem is in, in my mind. And I think that uh, uh, I, I have no doubt that we can improve the quality of learning within the institution called schooling and that we should do that. I don't think that that's where the major project is because it is a reproduction machine and it will continue to do some version of what it's currently doing uh, until something happens. Now, what I think is going on is that uh, there is a social transformation process where learning is migrating away from schooling. And that I think it is, has become a kind of matter of human survival that uh, schools are not very good at what they aspire to do. It's damaging to the people who are, uh, the adults who work in them and it's, uh, difficult for the clients of the system. And we're feeling at the moment like we don't have a lot of options. And certainly the, the ideological options of choice and market solutions simply reinforce the inequalities that are already institutionalized in the existing system. So that, that little alternative kind of went up in smoke. So I, I do think that um, what I would like to see in the short run for educators is uh, to get them involved in the design of learning environments um, that are non-school. And one example, one institutional example that I like to call attention to because it ne these people never get credit. And that's the librarians. <clears throat> if you look at what's happened to the, to the library sector, the public library sector, uh, <clears throat> since the advent of uh, technology, 
it's it's absolutely incredible. You look at the Chicago Public Library. It's become the major af after school learning uh, center in the city of Chicago. And it's not just the central downtown public library. It's all over the city. Public libraries in Chicago are places where kids go. They hang out. They learn. They congregate. The libraries have moved into that space. They've figured out that if the kids are going to be there, they need something productive to do. And so they've created massive opportunities for learning in those settings. That started to take on uh, a, whole, a whole sectoral flavor in uh, at least in urban areas all over the country. San Francisco, Seattle, Boston, libraries have become learning hubs for kids, basically. Now, that was just a matter of institutional survival <clears throat> because the technology of libraries has changed dramatically, basically. Educators are paying no attention at all to that, basically. If we had some kind of movement of teachers or educators among these alternative learning settings, trying to figure out what's going on in those settings that's motivating and engaging people. That would be a healthy thing. It would be a healthy thing for schools. It would be a healthy thing for society at large. I'm afraid that education and schools have become kind of defensive. They're, they're defending their turf. Uh, and uh, I worry that learning is starting to migrate away from, uh, from schools. Richard, I, I want to connect um, something that you said before. And also, well, I will say too, what I got from the library scenario is that they did a good job through survival of getting rid, rid of at least the custody and control issues, which means they can get faster towards the, the learning aspect of the way they do business. They did that out of survival. The optimistic piece for me is twofold. One, the optimistic piece is maybe through survival after COVID, both K to 12 and higher education will have to do something similar. And it also produced some optimist, optimism for me that you talk about the learner being resilient and the gaps that educators are calling for, maybe not being over a long span of time that big of a necessity to fill. But aside from that, I want to go back to the adult learner and connect right. this concept of instructional rounds, observation, simple questions, and what you would do now. What would you say to an educational leader who wants their educators to be learners? Suppose we can get them out to the library setting to see what's going on in a library. How would you run an instructional round there? Like, What's, what's the, the, the key to making those instructional rounds work so that they do have impact? Yeah. So uh, here's where I go back to beginner's mind. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I, I've said before that the most powerful experiences I've had in classrooms have been just sitting with students, talking to them. And 
talking to them about what they're doing. Basically, that's the first question I ask uh, when I sit down next to a student. I say, what are you doing? Uh, <clears throat> and um, I just want to say the answers are really interesting. Uh, um, so uh, that that kind of question that is being present for uh, people in the act of learning or uh, in the act of being expected to learn is 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 really critical and central to what I'm saying. I'll just give you one example. Um, because of the influence of behavioral psychology, um, we developed a theory about something called theory of mind. And theory of mind is a central uh, neuroscience concept that has to do with when developmentally do people understand when they're engaged with a person who is thinking at the same time they're thinking, right? That is that part of the project of learning something is being able to engage a person who is thinking about something you may or may not be thinking about, right? And the, it's the distance between the subject and the, and the other. And the, because of developmental psychology, we, because of the instruments that we use to study theory of mind, uh, before neuroscience, we came up with a theory that said that theory of mind kicks in basically not until <clears throat> uh, ages four or five, five or six, do, do people really begin, do kids really begin to understand this. Now, theory of mind is really central to learning because if you're going to learn something from another person, you have to be able to develop some understanding that they are trying to understand what you're trying to understand, basically. Well, um, neuroscientists at Berkeley, uh, Alison Gopnik, who's incidentally Adam Gopnik's sister, <laughs> uh, uh, started doing some neurological work uh, on theory of mind. And she discovered that uh, Infants acquire uh, the rudiments neurologically of theory of mind at about 18 months of age. So this machine called the human mind has been working on this problem of theory of mind for three or four, four or five years before adults think that the kids are capable of it, right? And we design a whole uh, preschool and, and primary school model based on when kids are capable of understanding the idea that they're learning from other people learning, basically. Well, um, that has revolutionary consequences because humans are developing much faster. They're much more competent than we're giving them credit for. We've de essentially designed a whole system that slows people's development down or at least expects them to develop slower than they're capable of. Now, that is becoming a common pattern in the research uh, on the neuroscience of learning. 
that human beings are much more capable learners given the right environment, given the right conditions, than our institutional expectations that are based on old technologies, old measurement, old theories have given uh, human beings credit for. The only way we're gonna step out of that is, is, to, is the beginner's mind, is to say, we thought we knew now we're learning something else. What does that mean? Right? And the, and the answer is not going to be simple or easy, or it's not going to happen in an instant. It's going to be a struggle because we don't know, basically. These are design problems that are going to require a lot of human ingenuity, basically. And I'll just return to that's the real equity problem, right? Richard, if if you would, uh, you know, you've you've given us a tremendous amount to think about. We would love to believe that our listeners, in particular, have gone into this field of work for all the reasons you listed, ambitiously desiring to better the lives of students. And hopefully they see what you're describing as an anthem of change, not only to help students learn, but you know, challenge the very systems in which may be preventing it. And so it's sobering, um, but also I think uh, a, a cry for us to really take a hard look at what we're doing. And I can say uh, in within almost 36 hours, this is the second time I've had a very difficult conversation around institute the institution of education and yeah. other was a nonprofit totally different i'm on on the on really it's just a meeting of the, of the minds i'm trying to better certain situations um if you wouldn't mind we would like to transition to some of our uh, five one thing series questions you sure. mentioned allison gopnik um and neuroscience quite a bit um, who is one person or group that you follow for either knowledge or inspiration and where could we find them? Well, well, um, the first, the first, my first answer to that is that uh, every educator should read uh, Alison Gopnik's book and Sarah Blakemore's book. And I can give you uh, the titles of those books. Uh, they're both books about the neuroscience of learning for different developmental ages. So Alison Gottnick's book is a book for uh, essentially infants and preschoolers. And Sarah Blakemore's book is a book about adolescence, basically, the neuroscience of adolescent learning. <clears throat> and um, again, uh, read the books with the beginner's mind. That is, some of your preconceptions about uh, early childhood learning will be reinforced. Many of them will not. Some of your preconceptions about adolescents and their capabilities as learners will be reinforced. Many of them will not. But in order to learn, 
what's going on, you have to be able to say, what I thought I knew I need to make into a question, basically. So that good questions are more important than good answers. Now, the reason I give those two is that there's a huge amount of neuroscience out there that's really not very accessible to educators. And you really, really, I mean, you really have to um, struggle to make sense of it. And frankly, the neuroscientists are not all that interested in education because they see what education has done to uh, human learning. Um, so uh, there's a gap uh, there. But those are two people who have really, um, really done some serious work on, on the neuroscience of learning that's developmentally focused. That's the key, I think, for our listeners. I love the Sarah Blakemore book title, Inventing Ourselves, The Secret yes. Life of the Teenage Brain. And then we're talking about the Alison Gopnik book, The Gardener and the Carpenter, if I'm yep. cor correct. And so we'll link those back to um, our show notes as well. So that, that those are, I'm going to pick them up today. And I know that our, our the gardener, listeners. Also, The Gardener and the Carpenter is a great metaphor. Uh, I believe in metaphors, um, and uh, it's, a, it's a metaphor that I think has power in understanding the role of neuroscience in the project that we're trying to do. Is our job as uh, uh, custodians, inventors, and designers of learning environments to build to a plan or is it to create a plot in which growth occurs? <laughs> that's, that's the difference between a gardener and a carpenter, right? They're both honorable occupations. <laughs> they do very different things, right? Uh, no, that's great. Thank you for those. We'll dig into them. Definitely our audience will love to hear about that and pick those up. Our next question, um, Richard, is what's the one thing that people should try to do on a regular basis that might make a difference in their day or life? That could be about learning or anything else, but we want your opinion on that. Well, um, I, I have to say uh, I'm going to be selfish in my answer to this. Uh, I have for the last 40 years had a practice in my life, uh, in part because I felt an obligation as an educator to, to do it. And that is to always have a learning project in my life in which I was a complete ground zero amateur, novice. And to um, <clears throat> put myself somewhere near the place I was expecting my students to be uh, and to try to mirror the struggles that go on as you're trying to develop confidence in something you don't know anything about. I think that is an obligation of every person who pretends to be a learner or 
engage in the in the uh, support of learning of other people is to always be an amateur at something. Now it turns out that with painting and art, I've really met my match. <laughs> this is this is challenging work. It's physical. It requires uh, a sense. Of, I thought I was a pretty good observer. I thought I was a pretty pretty good at making sense of my environment. I've had to learn an entirely new set of observational skills. It's a motor activity, which, which requires me at a relatively advanced age to engage myself, the relationship of my brain and my motor system in an entirely different way. It, it's required me to engage in an entirely different historical context about the development of a, of, a, of a powerful field of culture. It's, it's challenged every fiber of everything I do. And I, I feel like um, it's, been, it's, it's been a major driver of my sense of who I am to have always had something in my life that uh, I, I didn't feel good at. It, it turns out there's a wonderful book, brand new book uh, called Beginners, Tom Vanderbilt, that, that takes, takes up this issue. And um, I think that uh, it's back to the be, uh, beginner's mind idea that to be a good enabler of other people's learning, you have to be a learner. But being a learner is not simply getting better and better of what, at what you're already good at. It's, it's putting yourself deliberately in the situation of being an innocent learner, being at ground zero at something where you have to actually develop, and here, here we go into neuroscience, you're actually building an entirely new set of neural networks. This is what we're asking people to do. This is what we're asking or going to have to ask the people who occupied the Capitol building to do, is to build an entirely new set of neural networks around their understanding of how civil society works, right? Who's gonna do that? How is that going to happen? In what settings is that going to occur, right? How are we gonna prevent that from being perpetuated into the future? These are really serious learning issues. They have to do with this concept of neuroplasticity, how flexible is the human brain in altering its patterns and responses. The only way to really get to grapple with that is to understand it in terms of your own personal life. Richard, can I follow up on that only because uh, TJ and I both like to get granular. Um, when you say you're learning this, do you go through any, you know, traditional or formal mechanisms to learn? And so do you hire a mentor? Do you watch YouTube videos? 
And it just on a very practical level, I, I even started thinking about, you know, we ended your bio with the Tonka poetry. You know, is that something also that you delved into to learn? I mean, that's a very different style of poetry. Um, so, yeah. you know, can you walk us through that a little bit? Because um, I know some people get, you know, I don't know if it is going back to what we originally talked about, get stopped at the gate on how to proceed. Um, but is there a formula you use or just a, a passion which drives you, you know, I'm going to learn how to paint and I'm going to take this, this uh, approach. <clears throat> I got into painting through photography. And uh, one of the things I discovered in photography is uh, that uh, most of the people I um, learned the most from had been dead for decades. I learned by looking at their work, I learned by lear listening to people talk about their work. I learned uh, by observing. I learned uh, by just uh, practicing. And I learned by most of it virtual uh pretty low level instruction about the basics of photography now for painting it's become a much more complicated enterprise but i am enrolled in a virtual uh, an outstanding unbelievably good virtual art school <laughs> uh which is astonishingly inexpensive uh, given the quality of what they do. And it's also highly interactive. Um, and uh, it's as much uh, challenge as I can handle at the moment. So I don't feel like I'm, I'm missing anything by uh, not going to art school uh, down the street. Will I at some point want to be uh, an apprentice to a, a really good painter, probably, but um, that's, you know, that's part of the developmental process. I want to go back to the teachers uh, descriptions of their most powerful learning experiences. One of the things I didn't say about that is that every single one of those stories has a learning strategy attached to it. People didn't regard it as problematical that they had a crisis or a problem in their lives that they had to solve and that they had to find someone to help them solve it. They didn't regard that as particularly problematical. They just did it, right? That's important, right? I think- I think, I think that's very important to acknowledge. Yeah. That's 100,000 years of biological and evolutionary programming. <laughs> Right. That, that, didn't, that didn't just happen. That's programmed somewhere deep, right? The idea that other people have answers to the questions you're asking is somewhere in our biome, right? Uh, and none of them uh, seem to struggle all that much. Uh, once they, once they discovered that um, 
they needed help. So let's build upon this a little bit. What's one thing that you want to know or be able to do that you don't already? You've already demonstrated you this. I love the idea of ground zero and, and really embarking on something new. Is there something in down the road that you're really thinking about? One of the things I'm, I'm fascinated. Uh, I've done some work in China and I, and it's, it's very controversial because China is not a really great place at the moment. Uh, but I will tell you in terms of cutting edge learning practices, uh, and the willingness to explore the outer limits of human capability in the presence of a learning environment. Uh, I've seen more interesting examples in China than I have in the US. Now, how long the society, how long the government's gonna tolerate that, I don't know, but um, uh, I, I think their willingness to reach out to the edge of human capability is, uh, has been really kind of both shocking and highly motivating to me. The one thing that they haven't done that I would like to see happen uh, is they haven't really force the issue of the physical design of learning environments. And I think we have, I don't like crisis language, but I think we have uh, a real problem looming in that one of the reasons we preserve the for institutional forms of schooling that we have is that we can't figure out what to do with the capital stock and it's obsolete and uh, it's unhealthy for kids and physically it uh if you're you know if if making this organ work well requires a lot of movement they're not designed for that if uh if we're tending toward a neuroscience of learning that says that the individual is the unit of analysis and every individual has a unique developmental path by cognitive domain, uh, a set of boxes within a box is not a physical structure that's adaptable to that model of learning, right? So, uh, what I would like to do and what I am hoping to do with my architect friends is to begin to say, let's take a, an idea about learning and try to make a physical environment that corresponds to that idea. And I think that they're on for the project. New View, the, uh, one of the examples I sent you is actually a great example of this. It's a powerful learning environment that was invented by architects, basically. This is a group of 
people who came out of the uh, MIT architecture department and they just decided they were gonna design, build a design studio for kids. And it's sudden, you know, over a four or five year period, it became a school, basically. It looks like no school you've ever seen. It looks, it looks like a design studio, basically. Uh, all of the issues of custody and control are completely adapted to that environment and they have no problems with custody and control, basically. All the developmental issues having to do with the acquisition of domain specific knowledge, like what is the math you need to know? What is the psychology you need to know? What is the geography you need to know? What is the demography you need to know? All of those content domain decisions are determined by the project that the kids are designing for. And that knowledge is mobilized from the environment, from the Harvard MIT environment in the service of the kids learning, basically. So it's a, it's a blitzkrieg environment of, of the mobilization and mastery of knowledge in the service of a concrete social objective, which is literally often building a physical thing or creating a social organism in the community. And they do cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle of these things with kids between the ages of 12 and 18. And, and they produce massive amounts of highly uh, 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 productive work, basically. Uh, now, um, they have a theory. It's a really simple learning theory. People learn through successive uh, uh, practices of, of design and critique. And you, you learn what you need to know by going out into the environment and figuring out how to get it, basically. So I think that uh, what, what, we're, what we're searching for here is a way of designing an environment that allows that to happen, that allows kids to rediscover their capabilities as learners and to do that in concert with other people who are involved in a common enterprise and to regain their identity as learners in the presence of adults whose main job is to make sure that they're safe and can do what they're being asked to do. And I think that those physical environments will persuade adults, parents, that these are healthy places for kids to be. The real equity issue is who gets access to that. Yeah, I mean, super important physical design, architecture, I think we could do a whole round two on that one time, Richard, if you're, if you're interested in just, I mean, Joe being in a vocational school district and my district is, is growing and we're building schools all the time. And so love to do a round two on I that. Can give you, I, I can give you uh, the name of an architecture firm that, that, that would be really, really interested in, uh, in supporting you. That's great. That's awesome um, resource. And one of the reasons why we do these podcasts. Um, and I think, 
what you described too about the student as a learner is really something that connects me back to Bandora's theory of self-efficacy. It really is one of those four things that he calls for, for the learner to kind of transform the brain. But going back to human growth and human potential, you brought that up from the, the Chinese example. I'd like to ask you that question. What's one thing that has, continues to lead to your personal growth as a leader and, that somebody else might be able to replicate? Be an amateur and use it, use it to write your biography as a learner. You know, professional learning is really important, but professional learning really is getting better and better at something you already know how to do, right? The way you really learn about learning is trying to learn something you don't know how to do. <laughs> That's where you really have to come to terms <laughs> with what you what you think is good for other people. <laughs> it's interesting you say that, Richard. TJ and I have talked about this originally. You know, I, I when we started doing these podcasts a couple years ago. <laughs> I was filled with a little level of anxiety, asking the right questions, getting into uh, more in depth. And I can tell you after a few of them, I erased all that because I found myself, you know what, Joe, you're not listening. You're not listening. The, the question will come, which is generated by the curiosity of yeah. what I'm hearing. And so it's kind of transformed even, even the dialogue, transformed the approach and where I was afraid that this had to fit a mold because yeah. every, everything, you know, is just packaged in such a way, you know, TJ and I started, um, you know, even though a lot of the questions follow the one thing thread, it still dives into very deep conversations and uh, it, that resonates quite a bit with me on being amateur. And I, I just think about my own career as a teacher. You know, I, I got teaching awards al all along the way. Uh, and uh, at a certain point, I uh, became very unhappy. <laughs> uh, and I actually had an epiphany uh, where I was in a classroom and I, um, had an out-of-body experience and I was up in a, in a corner of the classroom looking back at myself teaching. And uh, I didn't like what I saw. I was performing and it, it, it totally changed everything I did in the classroom from there on, dramatically. Uh, and uh, it was very uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable for students. It was uncomfortable for me. Uh, they were uncomfortable because I was uncomfortable. We had to learn how to work it out. We had to learn a new kind of contract. Uh, they had to learn how to accept responsibility for evaluating themselves. In addition to having me evaluate them, that was an interesting dance because there were people in the room who said, it's not my job to evaluate myself. It's your job to evaluate me, right? Hmm. Right? And I said, we, okay, so we're in a human growth model here. 
um, how are we going to work this out, basically? I'm developing, you're developing. How are we going to do it, basically? And uh, so I feel, I feel like that experience was for me a microcosm of what I think transformation is about at the micro level, which is at what point do we decide to exercise human agency and control over the things that we know bother us about who we are and what we do, right? At what point do we step in and say enough? I'm good at this. I'm not happy, <laughs> right? It's not working, right? And I, that's the kind of overwhelming experience I have being in schools right now, frankly. A lot of, a lot of unhappy people. <laughs> and a lot of people who feel captured by their work. And we're trying to make them happy but we're not really attending to what's going on under the surface. And the world is sending us a lot of signals about what that's about. But we're having some difficulty understanding what they mean. And I don't mean to bear down so heavily on science. I think neuroscience is gonna be, you know, if it ever happens, acknowledging the impact of neuroscience on learning, organized learning is gonna be painful. Uh, but it's also gonna be really exciting and really stimulating in part because it's so uncertain. <laughs> like the kinds of problems that are coming up around just like individual differences in domain specific development. I mean, good Lord, you let that idea loose in the world, you're gonna have, you know, you're gonna have people becoming nuclear physicists when they're 50 years old. I mean, good Lord, we don't know how to we don't know what to do with that, <laughs> right? We have no idea what to do with that. Uh, so, uh, uh, but, but I also feel like uh, it's energizing and I wish that we had containers, physical containers, social containers, cultural containers to, to have that where we can organize that excitement. Uh, because I think it's going to be quite, quite a, quite a ride. Virgil, let's really uh, finalize the the interview with a question we love to ask, and I think it dovetails perfectly with what you just described, um, and with the outer body experience, the impact, even the sheer fact that you listened to it and didn't suppress it. I, I would love it, you know, maybe a future day to explore that more and how you, you really battled that because I'm, I'm sure that wasn't easy. Is there something you used to think that you don't think anymore? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I may be going the wrong direction for my age, but <laughs> I don't know. Um, so my training uh, initially was basically in uh, politics, uh, public law, public policy, and uh, organizational theory. And, and I believed 
I'm not even sure I was would have been able to say it this way because I think it was so implicit in, in who I was and what I was doing. I believed in the perfectibility of institutions. And I, and I believed in it in a fairly kind of naive way, a kind of linear development way. In fact, uh, I actually taught some stuff on organizational change that had a, you know, that kind of a flavor, which is cumulative learning in institutional and organizational settings. Um, and I think that I don't believe that anymore. <laughs> uh, if I had to capture what I'm saying, uh, what I'm thinking now, I would say that we've created institutions that have purposes that are becoming obsolete. And we don't have the, the design capability or the cultural and social networks to stay up with that problem. So we tend to try to des uh, design around it. We, we tend to say, uh, look, we got to work with what we have. So if we can't make more ambitious ideas of learning work within this institutional structure that we've built, we just can't do it. <laughs> I mean, it, you got to knock the corners off the grand piano to get it through the door, basically. <laughs> and uh, I don't think people are going to stand for that. I think they're just going to walk away. And I think that institutions lose legitimacy when people do that. All these workarounds on the attainment structure, the fact that people are routinely buying their way into college, basically. All these workarounds around meritocracy, uh, they're undermining the credibility of the institutions we've created. And we don't have much in reserve. So I think this naive model that organizations and institutions change to stay up with changing social conditions is something that I believed fairly naively that I don't believe anymore. And I believe that there's opportunity in that. There's also some pretty scary possibilities on the downside. I have also become skeptical, as you probably have <laughs> no doubt concluded, of the equity claims of public education. And I think educators are going to have to come to some kind of a reckoning around the aspirations that educators have for equity goals and the fact that they are participating in an institution whose primary function is to allocate privilege in society. Those two things are directly contradictory. There are solutions to the equity issue that I have seen work in rural Mexico. <laughs> Lord knows what the consequences are gonna be downstream because you're gonna have a bunch of, especially girls <laughs> who now exercise a lot more agency and control 
over their lives and their education than women in Mexico have traditionally exercised, right? So there's going to be trouble in the pipeline. But, uh, <clears throat> but you know, the, the thing about that tutoria program is they didn't try to solve the equity problem by changing the institution. They, try, they, they addressed the equity problem directly by focusing on the people who needed the support and basically designing an environment that empowered them to make choices for themselves. Now, uh, they have an ingenious relationship with the institutional structure, which is too complicated to go into. They basically colonized various bureaucratic positions to protect themselves. But they're, they're a social movement. They are not an institution. And I think that we learn, uh, we learn a lot about human capabilities just through the exercise of these powerful models of learning. And I wish more educators were involved in this, basically. I think about High Tech High. Are you familiar with High Tech High? Yeah. You know, the folks who designed High Tech High said, okay, so problem-based learning. We think we know how to do it. And we think that we know how to do it equitably. We have a solution to the equity problem. It's a really simple solution. We admit kids randomly by zip code. End of discussion, basically. Uh, so they have solved the equity problem. <laughs> you know? It creates enormous challenges inside the schools. Uh, but they're equipped to handle those challenges, right? They needed permission to do it, but they didn't really ask for permission. They just did it. And by the time they got to the point of really running into the constraints of the governance structure, the institutional constraints that the state of California and the local jurisdictions impose on them, they had so much institutional, so much organizational momentum that nobody could challenge them. So now they're, they're running their own graduate school. Uh, they're training their own people. They're basically uh, a, an alternative system encapsulated within an institutional structure that doesn't operate by their rules. Why don't we have a thousand of those? Why don't we have 2000 of them, right? What's so unique about these people? What's unique about them is they exercised agency in the service of, of a, you know, a, a strong theory of learning. This is the, the story of Newview also. They've become an international force in the reinvention of learning. They have sites all over the world now, basically. Uh, they have a very straightforward learning model and they have a certain amount of ingenuity and they have figured out uh, how to create an alternative universe uh, without being corrupted by the surrounding institutional structure. So I, I think, I guess I would say that a missing ingredient that I observe among educators 
with high aspirations, particularly around equity issues, is they lose their human agency at the point where they fear that they're going to lose their retirement. And I understand that as a rational response. And I don't criticize them for it. I probably would would do the same thing if I were in their situation. But it is uh, it is a huge constraint on our capability to respond to uh, uh, the challenges of learning. I had a I had a fascinating uh, moment in a Rounds Institute. I was running in a very very large midwestern city before COVID nineteen. And I was in a group of uh, uh, mid-level support people for the public schools in the city. And these are people who have a portfolio of schools that they're supposed to support with professional development and consultation and things like that. And it's really, really very sterling group of people, very intelligent, very well-motivated. And they asked me at one point, I was talking about Australia and, and what a remarkable uh, experience I had had there with uh, the improvement of instructional practice. And uh, so they asked me what, what was the difference between my experience in Australia and my experience in large systems in the US. And I said, you know, the thing about Australia is there's no overhead in the system. There's, a, there's state governance and there are schools. And there's a very thin layer of people who monitor and support basically financial functions and the schools manage their professional development budgets themselves. So basically it's a very thin administrative structure. And I said that um, the absence of overhead in the system meant that uh, educators really had to exercise a very, very high degree of, of agency. They had to figure stuff out. They had to make decisions. There was deadly silence in the room. And then there was nervous laughter because they were the, no, they were the overhead, basically. In other words, the solution to the problems we're facing in this large urban district is to get rid of us. You're, that's what you're trying to tell us. I, that wasn't where I was going, but that's where they went. <laughs> and so I feel like uh, as this one example of how <clears throat> the institution really gets in the way of making uh, uh, it possible for people to exercise agency. And there are people who figured out how to exercise agency. Why aren't there more of them? It's a good place to stop. Why aren't there more of them? The, the answers are out there. They need to be replicated. Um, you've given us a ton of examples of where we can go see some of this work um, in place. I've got three, at least three books here to read. And we started with The Beginner's Mind. I really see a theme of the amateur and novice through this and also developing a social movement that, you know, maybe we're just at the point in human history where 
we might see some of that happen. Richard, this is awesome. Um, <clears throat> is there anything else that you would like to add for our listeners before we wrap up? I think I'm probably going to get a reputation for being hard on schools, hard on teachers, uh, hard on on the enterprise of public education. Uh, I am critical and I'm skeptical and I want us to be kind because uh, the people I've worked with in public schools are largely insightful, competent human beings, reasonably good at their work. They aspire to things that I think are powerful and constructive. And if I had an overall critique, it would be that they don't understand deeply enough the fact that they've chosen to be in an institution that doesn't actually function to support those aspirations. And that uh, there is space, there has to be space in the world for people to show us what, what, a, what a future could look like. And let's be kind. <laughs> let's be kind to the institution. Let's be kind to the people who work in them. But let's also be ambitious and uh, creative and uh, powerful in the way we exercise our personal agency. Thank you for that. Uh, wise words. Uh, kind is the future of change. And that's an awesome way to finish up. Thank you so much for being on the show, Richard. It, this has been a pleasure. Wonderful. I love what you're doing. Keep it up. Okay. We appreciate you. We appreciate your time. There you have it, everyone. Another great podcast. Don't forget to follow our blog, the schoolhouse 302.com for blog posts, podcasts, and video blogs, always on the topic of leadership. We will link back to everything that Richard mentioned today. We hope you enjoyed this one thing podcast on leaders as learners and so much more. Thank you, Richard. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you, Richard. And wait, before you go, we have to tell you about our sponsor, Principles Seminar. And for the first time ever, they're running a masterclass on the topic of feedback. And guess who the hosts are? None other than Joe and I on the top of our book, Candid and Compassionate Feedback. Yes, it's a masterclass, five sessions, one hour each. You will be certificated in the concepts from the book and you'll give better feedback than ever before. Join the masterclass. Go to principalsseminar.com backslash LP backslash masterclass or click on the link in the show notes. We hope to see you there. Mm -hmm.